Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Keeping an Eye on the Geopolitical Ball with me, Jamie Shea, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Well, I've been recording these uh, sessions of the Eye for some years now, and one of the challenges each week is to find a new topic. But occasionally you have a major world event which imposes itself on you, and it becomes unavoidable to talk about it, to analyse it, and to try to figure out what it all means. And this has been one of those weeks, of course, with the Hamas uh, attacks against Israel that started last uh, Saturday um, and the international reaction. Now, uh, as I speak, uh, these attacks are still very much going on, uh, together with the Israeli uh, retaliation uh, against Gaza. And all of you will be familiar uh, with the casualty figures uh, uh, thus far, uh, the humanitarian crisis. I don't need to uh, repeat all that. So what I would like to focus on instead is what would we already be looking at uh, as the strategic consequences of, of the uh, Hamas attacks? What does it mean for Israel, for the Palestinians, uh, and for the uh, broader Middle East, and of course for the rest of us? Well, I think firstly, of course, uh, we have to ask why did Hamas uh, attack uh, when it did? Um, it's speculation because, of course, uh, we don't know uh, the definitive answer. But some have suggested that Hamas was hoping to disrupt uh, the normalization talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia, whereby uh, the Saudis would join the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Morocco uh, in the so-called Abraham Accords, normalizing their relations with Israel. Um, of course, with the uh, Israelis now bombarding uh, Gaza, much more difficult for the Saudis to go ahead with this. Others have speculated that it's a gesture of despair uh, because, of course, in recent years, uh, the humanitarian situation of 2.5 million Palestinians locked up in the Gaza Strip, a territory the size of the Isle of Wight, uh, has only got worse. Uh, and we've seen mounting violence between uh, Palestinians and Israeli settlers on the West Bank, too. Uh, 200 Palestinians have been killed so far this year and some of the uh, settlers, and some, particularly on the Palestinian side, uh, interpret Hamas's response as a kind of outburst of, of violence uh, uh, against uh, uh, a Middle East peace process, which clearly has not been advancing for many years now. Uh, a third uh, interpretation has been the hand of Iran. Um, uh, we have no proof that Iran actually pulled the trigger uh, in terms of uh, commanding uh, the Hamas operation. Uh, Tehran has denied it. But what is indisputable, dear listeners, is that Iran for many years now has been bankrolling Hamas uh, with uh, not just money, but with uh, weapons and with training, uh, with intelligence, with organization. Um, and Hamas could never have acquired 7,000 rockets and uh, all of the fighters, well-armed fighters, uh, to break into Israel uh, without that long-standing uh, Iranian support. But if you're an Israeli, you're probably less interested immediately in the why did Hamas act than the how did it act. Because for the Israelis, there are three uh, uh, fairly sobering uh, conclusions. Number one, of course, is the intelligence failure. Uh, Israel has always prided itself on its well-admired uh, intelligence services. Um, and uh, we would have thought that uh, if uh, Hamas had to take about 12 months to plan such a big operation, something would have leaked out that Shin Bet or Mossad or the military intelligence branch would have picked up on. So there will obviously be a fundamental review to figure out what went wrong. Were there signals? Probably yes. And if so, why were they not picked up? The, the second failure is, is one of security. Israel has invested billions 
uh, in building walls and fences and watchtowers and electronic uh, monitoring and sensor devices uh, to stop groups like Hamas breaking into its territory. But the ease with which Hamas did break through in several places uh, is something which, again, is going to force the Israelis to rethink many of their security arrangements. And the third failure is that the army was slow in responding, particularly in places like Sidorot and Ashkelon, or on the border with the Gaza Strip, where uh, many of the casualties uh, were found. What happened uh, there? Again, in a country which prides itself on its resilience uh, and its speed in reacting uh, to uh, terrorist uh, attacks. Uh, for the international community, there are also some questions that we need to uh, uh, grapple with. The first, of course, is to ensure that the Israeli reaction is proportionate, uh, particularly in terms of the humanitarian situation uh, in the Gaza Strip, where already 260,000 Palestinians uh, have been forced from their uh, homes. Uh, and Palestinians claim today, for example, that already 1,000 Palestinians uh, have, have died. Uh, we need to be mindful, of course, that the suffering is always on both sides and the suffering of one does not justify the killing of others. Um, and Israel in the past uh, and sometimes uh, won a military victory only to lose in the court of public opinion by being seen to be responding in an undue heavy-handed way. At the moment, quite rightly, Israel is the victim. Uh, it has the right of self-defense, as President Biden pointed out in his White House uh, speech uh, yesterday. Israel has declared a war on Hamas and wants to eradicate this very important threat uh, uh, to it. Um, but how can the international community prevail upon Israel to somehow get the balance better uh, between military action uh, and uh, uh, trying to minimize civilian casualties and dealing with the humanitarian crisis as much as possible. It's not going to be easy, but because it's not easy, doesn't mean to say that we can simply uh, ignore it altogether. The second issue is preventing the war from spreading. Uh, uh, there's been some firing across the border between the Israeli forces and Hezbollah in Lebanon, also between uh, Syrian militias uh, uh, and Israel on the Golan Heights. Uh, I've spoken about Iran. We've seen in the past how quickly other Arab states uh, could be pulled in uh, to these uh, uh, conflicts, even if uh, less fortunately uh, uh, today. And therefore, preventing an escalation uh, of the conflict uh, in the weeks ahead is going to be key. Israel cannot afford a war on multiple fronts. And frankly, the West, at a time when uh, it needs to support Ukraine uh, in its counteroffensive, cannot afford to divert all of its money, attention and weapons away from Ukraine towards Israel, even though the United States and others clearly will have Israel's back. Well, we can understand that uh, as well. So containing escalation. The, the third thing is to prevent uh, an Israeli reoccupation uh, of uh, Gaza. Uh, this was done in the past with pretty uh, uh, bad results for Israel. Uh, uh, the, uh, Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister back in 2005, withdrew the uh, Israel Defense Forces and the settlers from Gaza precisely because it was such a difficult area to police. Uh, Israel must make sure it doesn't go back to doing that. It, it's not a solution uh, to the confrontation uh, that we have seen. Um, we also uh, need to see with Israel uh, what future security arrangements make sense for the country. Uh, for instance, uh, is it wise to have 
uh, cities very close uh, to the border with Gaza, like Sidra and Ashkelon, which are very vulnerable uh, if groups like Hamas uh, break out. Is it wise to allow settlers to continue to expand on the West Bank if it only provokes more violence or crises with the Palestinians? Uh, shouldn't we uh, respect more the arrangements on the Temple Mount uh, where the holy sites are shared between the Jews and Muslims, again, uh, to calm the uh, situation uh, and to withdraw from the government the bedrock of political support, which they're always uh, counting on. Uh, finally, uh, Israel will be united as a result of the events over the last couple of days. Um, we know that in recent months, with the massive demonstrations across Israel, that the country has been bitterly divided between the right and the left, between secularists and, and religious uh, parties, uh, over the reform of the judiciary, the future, future shape of the constitution, the destiny of the country. For a time being, those bitter divisions will be put aside, but the national unity is also something that Israelis need to use to take a deep look uh, at their country, at their future, and at political arrangements in the region. Uh, what the events over the last couple of days have shown is that you cannot have a total security solution to political problems. You can't box it in and wall it in and hope it's going to go away. Uh, it will find a way of erupting against you. I'm not justifying Hamas in any way, quite the reverse. Uh, in terms of what it has uh, done. But uh, all of these events, of course, do point to the need to get some kind of political momentum and political dialogue going in the region. Uh, it's not impossible. The Abraham Accords between Israel and some of its erstwhile Arab enemies have shown the progress that can be made. But the only solution is a two-state solution. And although it's been deadlocked for a long period, we need to turn our minds once again. In the long run, once Israel is secure, once Hamas has been defeated and the extremists have been weakened, but nonetheless, to turn our attention to more constructive politics and to finally look at how Israelis and Palestinians one day can live at peace and comfortably together in the same part of the world. Uh, that's all. Thank you for listening today. And I look forward to engaging with you next week.